Well, good morning. You can turn it down just a little bit. So, people who become Christians, I find that they are often surprised to discover that, well, it doesn't get easier. In fact, it gets harder. Not to be confused with it doesn't get better. I mean, it does, and in astronomical ways get better, better community, better and more significant relationships, better self-esteem, better purpose, better enduring hope, living under a grace principle versus a performance principle, on and on and on. There's something about the Christian life that is better, but pretty universally, at least in the first century, and I would suggest especially in the post-Christian 21st century of New England, I heard your voice. It's harder to be a Christian, much harder. Even a degree that you dedicate yourself to living a kingdom-centered life, it gets awkward harder. Why? Because in this peculiar time that we live, relative to redemptive history, it's throughout Scripture described as a time of testing. I suspect we haven't given a lot of thought to that. But this is over and over, as we've seen even in the reading of of Revelations that I put there in the meditation, the expectation is to be tested. And to be tested means to live in tension and to live in conflict. We talked about it in the evangelism conference this weekend. We talked about particularly this way in which We as a church, particularly living in New England, the most destitute place in North America, right here. All the stats show it, but I didn't need to tell you that. It's a time of testing to be a Christian. Oh, it was was great in the Christendom world when the gospel could become good news. Those who had been Christianized by the institutions of society where morality, even if it wasn't followed, even if Christianity was nominal, it was at least adhered to in the sense that it's the ideal. We know, of course, here that's not true. It's almost ridiculous. It's irrelevant. In that culture, we could go out with good news, and we'd talk a lot about grace. Amen. Over and over here, We encounter people that don't feel guilty. Guilt isn't the driving issue. Maybe liberation is. Seeking freedom from from power, from institutions, from church. We find ourselves having to rediscover the gospel. There are many metaphors for the gospel in Scripture. Clearly, liberation is one of them. We are discovering that metaphor in the manner in which we even do evangelism. But clearly there's a time or a season of tension. We see in the book of Acts, and we've studied it some here, how how the Acts presents Christianity coming into being as, as in a grand collision course with the world. We see it in the New Testament, how it's light coming into darkness, and how the expectation is that darkness receives it not. And yet it's amazing how this Christendom informed kind of mentality where we, a church, if we're a mission church at all, it's, we send people to the mission field, to the front lines. How does it change us? 
when we discover, as we have here, that we are the church that's sent, that this is the mission field. And every day of our life, we feel it, don't we? Am I connecting with you here? Those who work out there, live out there, have neighborhoods out there, perhaps the worst of all is there's just a kind of postmodern, post-Christian yawn when we say we're, oh, I mean, as in, I don't see the relevance of that. We've been, we've been living along. We've set up our lives without that for a long time. But if that's good for you, that's great. Tolerance, cool. And so enter this passage again. Last week, we in, in entered into this conversation with Matthew 4 as we're going through the series of Matthew. And, and we saw that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew describes it, focusing on the sphere from which it comes, even if it's synonymous to the one who brings it in God himself. This kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we see how it is the central theme of the whole redemptive history. We started from Genesis all the way to Revelations and showed how when Christ came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, it's central to everything the Bible is about. It's not an exaggeration to say that this coming of the kingdom of God is the driving force of redemptive history. We saw that it was theocentric. It's not a kingdom that can come from this world. It's not something that can depend upon human ingenuity in that failed attempt like Babel. And we see that today, how often if there is Christianity, we, we focus so much on our own ingenuity and our wisdom and our education and our powers and our money. It's just another source. And it creates another sphere, a sphere that's in the world, not of the world, but always for the world. The resident alien. And that gets to the dynamicness of the kingdom. It's come, it's here, but yet it's not come. It's not yet here. And there is the collision. There it is. Here we sit. A meager little group of people in the midst of New Haven. It's come. It's real. We've seen miraculous transformations in our lives and even in our church. But it's in the world. Not of the world. Awkwardly so. <laughs> but always remembering it's for the world. And so let us pray as we encounter the great testing of Christ. What does it mean? That very carefully, Matthew wants to frame this first inaugural event of Christ's ministry as a temptation. Even referencing the persecution of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, please come. I know we bring all kinds of assumptions and presumptions, often from places where and times where uh, they are very different than the times and places we live here. Help us to see the normacy, the new normacy of what we experience, even as it instructs us, Lord, to be encouraged, to persevere. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we can divide this uh, little exposition of, or commentary of Christ's uh, Christ, uh, temptation or testing into two parts, basically. And it's actually significant to do that because the temptation in this kind of context where everybody's just wanting it to be practical, of course, that means just tell me what I can learn from Christ's temptation about how I can and fight temptation. And that's where you would think I would go first, but I won't go there first. 
because I want to emphasize something that we could really lose. It really is important for us to hear. The uniqueness of Christ's temptation. Even as there is also a commonness to it, which is evidenced in John the Baptist. But first, the uniqueness of Christ's testing. Just an observation. Do you notice how Matthew goes out of his way to record the temptation as a highly unusual temptation? Unlike anything in our experience as that of the Messiah, especially as related to two things. No, for instance, in both instances, Jesus doesn't deny being the Son of God. The focus is on Christ, the Son of God, over and over. He doesn't deny it. Temptation does not come to you and I like that. We're not approached as the Son of God, but also accepts this messianic role of human representation submission. He accepts it as his calling to be treated like this. How so and for what purpose, you ask? Well, notice, especially if you were to look at some of the modern sermons, I did a little view, here's how people are doing this. I couldn't find anyone referencing this until you go back to about 150 years. And then you see everyone referencing it. It really shows you how things have changed. James Henley Thornwell, whose sermon on the passage is entitled, Christ's Temptation is the Second Adam. Boom. Gerhardus Voss, the probation of Jesus. Boom. What does that mean? You see here, there is a kind of presentation of Christ as a redo of the temptation of the first Adam. We all know what happened to first Adam. He was tempted in, in this probationary period or season of Eden, and he failed. And the curse came upon all of humanity. Here Christ is presented as the second Adam. Again, a redo of the temptation of the first Adam. Luke, for instance, gives us a very clear hint about this. He places the temptation immediately after tracing Christ's ancestry to who? Adam. He's the son of Adam, the son of God, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. And it says about this son of Adam, how he returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. You see, here's the point, and I want to show it to you a little bit clearly, but I want to tell you real clearly where it is. Being tempted here is not merely as a person like us, but this is as a covenant executor. You know what a covenant executor is. You do it in a will. You do it in other contexts. Someone who is given the privilege by divine or some state or some authority to represent another. That's all Jesus is doing here. He's representing, who do you think? Us. Those who were represented by our first Adam. And so Christ comes representing us as this covenant executor representative. Some call it federal headship. And Adam and his temptation by Satan in Eden is all over again. We know the context in chapter 3 of Genesis. We know the curse that came. Notice then, there's an unique initiation. Here, the Spirit led him into temptation. Whoa. Can we say that? Can we say, oh, yeah, the Spirit led me into temptation? We can say it's God's providence, sure. But this takes on a kind of redemptive act here. The work of the Spirit leading him into temptation. 
the very spirit which just ascended on Jesus, coronating him as the Messiah King, equipping him for the messianic work, now leads him to testing. There's a unique occasion, 40 days fast. My temptation doesn't come that way. I can tell you that right now. A unique encounter. The devil speaks audibly. A unique use of a unique power. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I've never been tempted like that. I don't have that kind of power. A unique concession. The devil concedes that Jesus is the son of God. He concedes the point. There's a unique offer. He offers the wealth of all the kingdoms of the world. He offers to him at what only a divine king is worthy of. In verse 8 and 9, and a unique lack of subtlety, not as an angel of light, not wearing sleep's clothing, he is in himself the great Messiah. You see, Matthew goes out of his way to record the temptation as a highly unusual event, unlike anything in the history of the world except Adam. So what's the point? Of course, it harkens back to the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, how there would be another covenant executor of the seed of the woman, how he would come and he would satisfy this probationary event on behalf of humanity, therein our salvation. We call it justification. This idea that, that we are now justified, justly deserving of the blessing that would have been Adam's and all of his posterity if he had maintained and satisfied the test of his probation. That's why I call it the test of Jesus. This is huge. The temptations connected with this messianic calling, you see. Causing the sin, if committed, be specifically messianic sin. The temptations, therefore, are messianic, or, or what it would be for him to be sin, if, what it would be for him to sin as our covenant executor, as I've said. And so the reply of Christ, of course, over and over again is, man shall not, dot, 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 thou shall not, Tempt the Lord thy God, dot, dot, dot. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone, dot, 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 dot. Over and over again, Jesus, totally unlike our first covenant head, satisfies the test over and over again. Again, he doesn't deny being the son of God, but accepts his role and satisfies it beautifully. So what do we have going here? It's as if here Christ is satisfying what we can't. You get it? So that forever our salvation will be changed. He quotes Scripture over and over. Notice what Jesus quotes from Scripture, particularly in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy every time. He's going back to that covenant now that was given to Israel to be the representative nation on earth, the witness, the light, the nation that was to, to draw the nations to themselves. He's saying, I will satisfy everything Israel was to do by quoting 
the very covenant of renewal given once to Israel, the people, the Old Testament church, us, in other words, us, our people, in line with Israel. Druid Army 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, we're thinking of Israel in the context of the wilderness, in the context of a collision of sorts. They're saved, but they're not yet saved, and they're tempted to take things into their own hands and put their trust in their own self-sufficiency, their own ingenuity, and God reminds them you should not live like that. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as tempted him in, in Massa. Even here, the context is Exodus 17, seeking to test God as to whether or not he had the power to lead them to Canaan. Again, a sin of disbelief or unbelief. He was tempted, as we are, aren't we? Aren't we tempted to be self-sufficient, take things in our own hand? Whoa. I just was about to confess it this morning. There it is again, self-sufficiency. I got this one. Even as we pray for God to help us get it on our own. God, give me, give me, give me, help me. Oh, we go to him for help, but ultimately it's my plan and it's my power. Instead of putting ourselves in his mercy, actively in faithfulness doing what he calls us to do. I do that, don't you? Am I alone here? And here we have it. Self-sufficiency. Here we have it. Disbelief. I've said it so many times. You've heard it a hundred times. But at least on an annual basis, I find myself being an atheist. Having to go rediscover that I believe in God again. Rehearsing the arguments. Rehearsing. Going to the places where I need to go, which most especially for me is temple creation. And experiencing that and going, okay, yeah, I see it. There's just no way. And then coming to church and seeing the incredible consistency and continuity of the word of God and how it reveals God to me, okay, I'm in, I'm in. But it's hard to believe this stuff. I mean, come on, this is wacky. It is wacky. Jesus, God, and human, heaven for everybody. Where are you going to fit them all, God? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to believe. Doesn't it... it slightly encourage you that God sees this and sent someone to represent us in believing wherein we are saved when we can say to the extent I believe, oh God help my unbelief oh believe, oh help my unbelief Deuteronomy 6.13 he quotes again, worship the Lord your God and him alone in the context of forbidding idolatry, of forbidding what I do all the time. As Calvin said, I'm an idol maker. I do it all the time. You know, idols, it's so deceptive. We, we make them in our own image. And by that, I don't mean I, I looks like a Preston Graham face. I would never worship that. <laughs> what I mean in our own image is I, I make an idol that I need to be able to manipulate in order that I can though justify it, serving a noble cause. Idols always have a noble dream attached to something, though, that I can, in effect, control. And yet the idol will come back when it doesn't meet our noble dream, and it'll blame us for not working hard enough to satisfy this idol. Money. 
What's the noble dream? Oh, my family to flourish. Take care of my subordinates. Use it for good things. I can have all kinds of noble reasons to, to make money. Money in itself is not evil. It is, though, a great temptation. And when we assert it into a place of idolatry, well, what then does that mean? Oh, isn't that convenient? I can work. I can move it and shake it down off the money tree. But then when I don't achieve the happiness that I thought it would have achieved, it's because I don't have enough money. And this goes round and round and round. Now, this is just many examples, but Jesus understands what we're dealing with here. He was tempted as such to disbelief, to idolatry. And so here we have two Adams, one serpent. Two Adams. The first Adam, far from guiding the created order into the obedience of God, protecting his wife, he falls. The second Adam accepts his duty to lead his subjects into the great submission of God, <coughs> excuse me, and he succeeds. This is the very basis. So point number one after the uniqueness of Christ is this. Here's your take home. Don't pass over the uniqueness. Because here we live in the context of this great testing and yet never ever forget that your salvation is not at stake. That you are assured, all who've put their hope and faith in Christ as their second Adam, by the promises given to us by God as to that effect, you can be assured that you're right with God. There is no condemnation. You're accepted. You're not going to be rejected. And he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will do that. Greater is he who lives in you than he who lives in the world because you're a Christian. What boldness will that greet you? You will not get your identity from others' responses from you. You will not get your identity from your performance in a workplace or in a social place or in a neighborhood place or wherever you want to go place, a schoolroom place. That's not my identity. I am in that sacred place we call the kingdom of heaven. And I will flourish. Guaranteed. Guaranteed, not on my own work, but on the work of Christ, who even now is seated in the heavens, on his throne, ruling all things, giving his head of all things over unto the church. Wherein, what? He controls everything for us. But, but, not before a season and so it begs the question, how in? Well, let me go to the second point. So justification. But the second point, when you pray, you pray to one. Think of this. You pray to someone who has, in fact, been tempted as in category as you have. Oh, I don't mean that he wants this iPad. I mean that he has been tempted in category. In all those what we call cardinal sins, those sins beget all other sins, which we know the ultimate sin is to reject God. That's the cardinal sin. That's original sin. We talk about it all the time, of which all other sins come. He knows what it means to be tempted in that sin. Believe it or not. Well, believe it. That's the point of the passage. He's been tempted as such. 
So when you come to him, oh God, here I am again confessing it the hundred thousandth time on my knees on Sunday morning at CPC worship. Here it is again. Are you still going to, are you still going to forgive me? And he comes out and says, yep, I do so for my mere good pleasure. It's who I am. I give grace to who I want to give grace to. Thank you very much. It's not predicated upon you. I forgive you. Because I have stopped relying on myself and put my reliance on Christ. It's that simple. Secondly, when you pray to him in that context, to persevere, to give me the grace, to help me out, persevere. Oh, God, I'm, I'm hurting here. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm struggling. Whatever it is, when you go and you say in those amazing words, in Christ's name, this is not some little formulaic cliche that kind of puts a little white tape around it as a package. This is to say, in the name of my covenant executor who satisfied my probation, therefore making me have every access to the throne room of your grace, and two, it's in the name of one who now sympathizes with me and therefore prays with sympathy. It's one thing for Jesus to stand up there, these wingbats, here we go again, God. Forgive him, would you, if you want to? No, this is a guy that's putting his blood out there for you. His own blood. Saying, this guy, Preston Graham, he and me and I and him, Lord, would you forgive him? That's the point of John. Don't forget this in this struggle that we have. Don't forget your assurance. It's funny, when I came up here from Georgia, from Atlanta, I realized really quickly that everything turns on assurance because it matters up here. It matters that I'm assured because I feel so wrong and weird in a world so... It's, it's front lines. You know, I'm not at, at Fort Bragg and wherever Fort Bragg is, I think North Carolina or something like that. I'm not in Fort Bragg, man. I'm, I'm in this place that I can't name in Kandahar. So here we go. That's the first point. I want to make sure you get that one. But let's go to the second. Okay, but notice a second observation. That Christ's testing is particularly in a manner in which we are going to be told by Christ would follow us as well. And he says it this way, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Matthew will go on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You should expect testing and temptation and persecution is one form of it. Matthew illustrates this, especially in right after the testing of Christ, as a reference to the fact that, hey, he's not the only one getting tested. John just got arrested. Now, when they heard that John had been arrested, probably around 12 months after the baptism of temptation, but he wants to make sure you connect it to this story, you see. And so it says he left Nazareth and relocated in Capernaum. Why did he tell us this? I mean, it seems to be an insignificant little nothing, but we know nothing in the Scripture is insignificant, so if we don't get it, we might need to slow down. 
What is the significance of Zebulun? Why does he quote this passage in, in uh, where is it, Isaiah, I think it was, or, or uh, wherever it was. I'm getting to it in a minute. It's not on this page. But why would he quote it? Maybe because he's going to import something, an expectation about something, into this context. And so notice what he does here. Why would Matthew devote a separate paragraph to inform us of this seemingly insignificant event? Well, he wants to reference the fact that his temptation and the coming of the kingdom of God is into the context of spiritual darkness as light. Matthew tells us this reason by quoting Isaiah's prophecy, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the nations, those who were in this context used as those who needed to be saved, those who were pagans in their various ancient Middle Eastern pagan religious experiences, that somehow the kingdom of God was coming there where there would be a great, a great journey to the gospel. And he goes on, the people dwelling in darkness have seen now a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Wants to leak Christ's ministry of the coming of the kingdom of heaven to this great prophecy of a collision course with darkness. And yet in this collision and in this tension and within the context of this temptation, it's the very temptation itself and the manner in which the church now follows after Christ, taking upon themselves his cross, suffering with dignity, suffering with love, not suffering with retribution, not seeking justice for me, 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 but seeking their salvation. When the church begins to act like that, like they did in the first century, then you, it can be said that the church... The kingdom of God is being built on the blood of the martyrs. It's their very suffering that will authenticate, you see, the credibility of this grace-based gospel. You know the phrase here, the resident alien idea. Too often it gets moved in politicized ways, I must confess, but, but what is at the core here? is this idea of the church being a kingdom not of this world, in this world, for the world, wherein the way in which they manifest the gospel is by virtue of the testings that expose the gold from the dross to the whole world. It's part of our mission. It's amazing how I grew up in a culture that celebrated the worldly celebrities in order to get me to Christ. Now, I don't know, I'm not, I mean, you know, everybody has a right to have a testimony. I don't care if the world thinks you're a celebrity success person or not, okay? So it's not at all to diminish anyone that's successful or anything like that. But it's totally misguided if we think that that has power in a way that, say, showcasing those who are sorely tempted or tested or persecuted or even suffering for Christ. Here we have this very clear transition of tension again. God himself throughout the scripture is defined as the God of light. Evil is always defined by darkness. A time of testing where light enters into darkness. 
course, this is nothing novel in all of redemptive history. This kind of preparatory testing. What is it preparing us for? Our witness. I want you to hear that. Testing. Not preparing us for salvation. That's done. Is now preparing us for witness. To be an evangelist as a church, corporately, as we all together play our part especially in solidarity with those who suffer for Christ, who are losing the, willing to lose their face and to lose their reputation to identify with those who've already lost it. It's one of the great signs when the church flourished the most. I remember in my Puritan studies when I was up in Massachusetts and we were studying a particular pastor who came here and, and he, he was coming because the, the authorities had kicked him away. And he got on the boat where he, planned to get on the boat, but he did so quietly. It brings tears to my eyes to think about it. Quietly he was going to leave to bring no more harm upon his people. He was obviously the lightning rod. For he was the voice. And his whole congregation ended up at the boat packed. We're going too. We're not leaving. I say that because Especially here, we need to back each other's back. We need to cover each other's back, you see. And this is part of what, why? Because we understand this idea, this theology, that this testing, if it comes upon you or you or you, sure, we need to be careful that it's the testing because of our witness and not because of our stupidity. But let's be sure to back each other up, to not leave each other, uh, each, uh, you know, of us up there on the podium and, and over here in the context of our public square and, you know, quietly just quietly, for civility's sake, keep it to ourselves. You see, we're missing the opportunity of a lifetime to stand with Christ. And if it brings persecution or, or if it in some manner affects you, and it will sometimes, you see, that's the difference between the church in a Christendom world where there's a kind of hegemonic, we call it, that is to say that they enjoy social privileges, economic privileges, political privileges, even institutional privileges for being a Christian, even if just nominally. It was a good thing where I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, to be a Christian. Here, we talked about the other day, my wife tells me all the time, to say that I'm a Christian and actually be able to say it with a sense of, yeah, I really actually believe in this stuff, we're immediately beginning, what? Well, you know what's going to happen. You're some kind of a fanatic. Oh, are you, no, probably worse. You're going to be those guys that, that judge me, and proselytize me. Are we willing to suffer to be light? That's what this is all about here. This testing is not novel. It's throughout the redemptive history. Exodus 16, then the Lord sent to Moses, Behold, I'm about to reign bread from heaven to you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them, whether they will walk with me or not. It shows up again in Exodus 20, and Deuteronomy 8, and Judges 2, and Judges 3, and the Psalms, this word testing, this idea of testing. And the New Testament, again, let me read Revelations. It, the book, it's all through, this word testing is all through the New Testament. I'm just, for the sake of time, not going to bore you with it. Go do your Google search or your, your word search, and you'll see it, testing and, you know, in this way. And, but Revelations 2, I think, puts it all in perspective. Sort of this book that was written to Christians who were being tested. 
He didn't say, wow, this is odd. The kingdom of God has come. Why are you being tested? You must not be a very good Christian. You know, you're supposed to be more healthy and wealthy and wise. No, it doesn't say that kind of stuff. It doesn't say the kingdom of God has come. Oh, man, you're expecting, you know, all these miraculous healings and all this stuff. No, God can do what he wants to do. We don't disavow that God is miraculous. But just maybe there's a greater purpose to our life than immediate gratification. Just maybe. Now, look, I don't mean to be picking on any kind of dumb, but Christendom doesn't get that because there's not that context. So listen to the revelations to a people who are now living it. Light in the midst of darkness. Suffering a testing. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. That means a perfect amount of time. Until its purpose is done, i.e., that's pretty much a summation of how long this age is going to last right there. Until it's time, you will be tested. Be faithful. You didn't stop there. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death even. Be faithful. And I will give you the crown of life. To Smyrna. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found themselves to be false. You see what they're doing? In the context of testing, there will be many that will try to accommodate those who would persecute them, creating a church, creating a Christianity, creating a world that satisfies the sort of worldly passions. He says, look, I especially take note of you, Smyrna, because... You're not caving in. Testing. This is not the test as you may think of it in an academic sense to get a grade. It's a preparatory testing. It's the test that I remember when my coach and and my athletics would, would make us run until we almost, you know what? In fact, we would. Testing to create endurance to create muscle memory, to create, you see, it's a preparatory testing. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything in 2 Corinthians 2. In 2 Corinthians 8, for in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That was Paul's, by the way, resume when he went into this church that had become very worldly, expecting their great kingdom of God to come through someone who would be very populous in his preaching and teaching, very wealthy as he would come with the entourage like other prophets would come and stay at the very most affluent houses of the city, Paul would come poor, beaten up, and he says, my resume, I can tell you, here's why you should listen to me. He doesn't say, did you see all the miracles that I've done? Did you see all the things, all the people that flocked to me? He said, no. Here's my resume. I've taken up my cross and I follow Christ. Proof? Here's here's my little bullet points under that point, you know, that we do in a resume. You remember all the cities? Every one of them, they threw me out. 
they stoned me. I was stoned almost to death. I got no money. I'm poor. Now, I'm speaking categorically here. I'm, I don't want to get into, don't get too literal here. I don't know what God calls you to be, the kind of wealth you may or may not have to do. That's not the point. It's what you do with it. And so this is the point of the sermon. Are you willing to be tested? To be a light to the world? When we pray, thy kingdom come, from now on, would you please take this sermon and just put it right into that prayer? Now the next sermon, after he proclaims this, he sends the disciples out in mission with an optimistic vision that many would be saved. Amen.